Hi, I'm Richard O'Brien. It's the 2nd of November at 5.01pm, and this is Now Here We Are 30 Years Later, a memoir in Mountain Goat Songs. Each episode looks at a year in my life through the lens of a song by John Daniel. Today, we're in 2001, and the song is Riches and Wonders. Immediately after Cobb's Cook Bay, in the 2007 requests-only live set John Daniel played to raise money for the charity Farm Sanctuary, came another song which seemed to have connected more deeply with listeners than its author had expected. One of a very small batch of songs written during his six-month stint in Chicago in 1995-6, Leaving Home deals obliquely with the songwriter's experience of watching the California coastline fade into memory as an airplane took me from LA to O'Hare Airport in August of 1995. Quite obliquely, actually, as this song takes place in China, Daniel goes on to wryly observe in the liner notes to Ghana, the 1999 reissue compilation, but for which the song would likely have vanished into even more distant obscurity. Like its subject, shrinking to the size of a coin as the singer pulls away into new and uncharted territory. As was often the case in early Mountain Goat songs, the truth is told slant. I made up a whole different set of circumstances with which to surround the feeling. The feeling disguised here is perhaps unusually universal. Anyone who has ever moved house has had to leave something familiar behind. Anyone who has done so for or with another person, meanwhile, might also recognise the complex internal negotiation of past and future for which the narrator apologises. I don't know what I love more, you next to me there, or the receding shore. Passing a six-month baby back and forth between them, the singer and his partner feel one final blast of their homeland's cold familiar wind before sailing out into open waters. The moment is ambiguous, poised between the energy of expanding horizons and the cold facts of loss. Reading it as a retelling of Daniel's own experience of leaving home complicates things still further. The lyric is a displacement of a displacement. Inadvertently, I enacted a pretty similar manoeuvre in the previous episode. I changed schools at the age of 11 in 2001, not 2000, and so the slight temporal dislocation I associate with this period of my life must have made my memory even fuzzier than I'd realised. The transition into secondary school is inherently disorienting. The oldest students in the building suddenly find themselves the youngest. The whole sense of scale is off. I don't know if you can see that disorientation in my official school photograph, staged in front of an artificial backdrop. From my own perspective, I don't look the way I did a year earlier. My cheeks are chubbier, my smile more stilted, my uniform more formal and restrictive. These photos tend to be scheduled within the first few days of term, after the handful of clammy coins that I tried not to drop all over the floor when my dad left me to wait for the 102 Delane bus from Market Deeping to Bourne, but probably before I'd fully appreciated that I was no longer in a space where many people particularly liked me. A scrawny guy heading into junior high, John Daniel was bullied badly at the same age, spending his lunchtimes reading mostly silently at the far end of the sports field with the one other person who was doing the same thing. A defining relationship for me, as he told Electric Lit, in a really quiet way. My school days at 11 weren't as isolating as this, though they weren't without their humiliations. I've got a pretty vivid memory of standing near a rubbish bin at lunchtime, supporting myself against it with my elbows, and the first girl in my year 7 class I developed a crush on cheerily calling me a bin baby. In and of itself, this is a sliver of inconsequential cringe, an idle comment in an idle moment. What's far more embarrassing is that it's from such moments, slowly, incrementally, over time, that a life is built. Speaking recently to Variety, Daniel identified as universal stuff one of his favourite creative themes. 
how former selves tend to rattle around inside us, and how we deal with maybe ugly former selves and grow away from them, and how we regard them. The elements involved in this process of growth will be different for each of us, some melancholic and minor, some irrefutably traumatic and wounding, and the last thing I'm interested in here is stealing valour. But every life has in it a certain amount of found materials, a book on the bleachers, a joke made just when it wasn't needed, a song heard exactly when it was, out of which a person becomes a person. The experience of moving addressed in leaving home wasn't, of course, the first time John Daniel had done so. That started with Indiana, this place where I had first seen light about which I knew nothing and could know nothing except that my mother and my father had been young and in love there, and about a year later they divorced. As he told the 2016 Festival of Faith and Writing, this space became a sort of lost terrain, a sort of Xanadu, like the moon or Oz, or Kansas in The Wizard of Oz, a film Daniel saw at the age of four when his parents were still together. He imprinted indelibly on its young star, an attachment which almost immediately transmuted into loss. I announced to my mother that I was going to marry Judy Garland, and it was her sad duty to tell me that Judy Garland was dead. The film setting seems to have blurred with John's birthplace as a hidden place in my heart through the many upheavals that followed. A consequence of the divorce, as John commented to Terry Gross, was having to move around a lot, feeling uprooted when stability is so important for children. One truly indelible moment for a five-year-old, the sudden intrusion of violence represented by a glass flying across the living room from his stepfather's hand towards his mother's head and smashing against the wall, is framed in dance music as an indication that there's something wrong with our new house, and thus a forcible severance of the implicit link between domesticity and safety. And yet, as Daniel told Pitchfork's Tom Bryhan in 2009 in reference to Genesis 3.23, when you go back to the places where the pain was at, you find there was more stuff there and that there's stuff about it that you miss just because it's you. As explained to Bryhan, the song draws on his experience revisiting the Paramount Apartments in Portland where he nearly died. In a recent live introduction, John connects it with the pathological impulse he felt as an adult to see inside the house in San Luis Obispo, where the glass was thrown. Both origin stories bear out the same observation. Every place that you left is Eden in some way. I became obsessed with this quote when writing a sequence of autobiographical poems which worked through memories of a series of rooms that I or my friends had lived in in the course of our twenties. These were all spaces no longer accessible to us, and the poems aim to reassemble them as a conscious act of reconstruction or tribute. The last in the sequence was about the flat I'd been living in with my then girlfriend for three years at the time of writing. By the time it came out, I wasn't there, and we weren't together anymore. Though I didn't consciously plan that poem as an elegy, it nonetheless responds to the same circumstances which underpin the rest of the project. Before the age of 18, I'd never moved house in my life, whereas between then and now I've moved about a dozen times. My wife, who grew up with a lot less economic stability than I did, has a number at least twice as high. Each of these upheavals in their bleakest reading might constitute a failed attempt at making home, another imagined future receding into the distance. Statistically, it would actually seem that the share of under-35s who move regions for work has dropped by one-fifth since 2000, but most of my millennial friends have stories similar to my own. Academia, in the UK and the US, is an increasingly casualised field with little long-term job security and the expectation that career advancement requires picking up sticks whenever one contract ends and starting again wherever the next one takes you. Research conducted in the UK by the Resolution Foundation concludes that almost two-fifths of millennials rent privately at 30, double the rate for Generation X, and four times the rate for baby boomers at the same age. 
In some regions, the proportion of families headed by a 25 to 34-year-old that own their own home has more than halved in the past 35 years. A different report emphasised that the receding horizon of home ownership, due to low and or insecure incomes, bound up in labour precarity, and an inability to save a sufficient mortgage deposit, has a tangible negative impact on well-being due to the lack of control and autonomy when your living situation is dependent on the decisions taken by others, e.g. flatmates and landlords. You're surrounded by leather couches you would never have chosen. You can't hang family photos without risking your deposit. A recent tweet by William G. Saraband underscores the fundamentally infantilizing nature of the private rental sector. It's so humiliating to be an adult who has to ask a stranger for permission to have a pet. I got my first permanent job in January 2020, about two months before the pandemic torpedoed the market for everyone following, and relied for my 10% deposit on a chunk of savings inherited from my grandma, as well as what was left after the spousal visa fees from a writing prize I'd won some four years earlier. Home ownership in the UK, some scholars argue, may now be becoming the preserve of the children of homeowners, and it's sobering to consider how much more of an uphill struggle getting a mortgage would have been without this safety net of privilege spread out beneath me. Michael Hobbs has explored how racial wealth disparities further compound all of these issues in a US context. Though I might now have personally scraped my way into a more secure economic bracket, Hobbs's pithy summary of the realities of graduating into a post-crash housing and labour market remains unnervingly familiar. For a decade now, I've been waiting for adulthood to kick in. John Daniel is not a millennial, and I can't speak to what concepts like adulthood and housing security might have meant to him personally in 2001, but he was certainly one of the minority of Gen Xers still renting privately at 30. In 1998, he and Tree were sharing a firetrap house in Colo, Iowa, a place you end up, if you can't afford to live in Ames, that cost $275 a month. The pipes froze in winter and mice skittered throughout the year. To save money on a bed, the couple slept on a couch in their living room where one of the mice bit him on the ear. The city of Colo couldn't convince the landlords to make repairs on it, so instead they bought the house in order to knock it down, leaving behind nothing but a giant hole in the earth. A year or two afterwards, in their new house in Ames, Danielle recorded All Hail West Texas. By the time the album came out, John was working four days a week at the Beloit Children's Home, a residential facility which for the most part offered structure and the first safe place they'd ever lived to children who had no place to go. This differentiated it from the for-profit locked wards of the 80s to which a friend of John's was taken as a teenager, uprooted some 350 miles from California to Utah, an event which inspired the best-ever death metal band in Denton. But soon enough, Daniel would receive a life-changing call from 4AD, a mid-sized record label with a roster of critically respected artists, which within two years would see his own career accelerate to the point that juggling nursing and touring was no longer possible. Structure is so important if you come from a place with no structure, Daniel notes, and repeatedly taking off for two weeks on the road didn't feel fair to the kids he was working with. This must have been a difficult decision for somebody who was drawn to nursing through his own experience of a counsellor's support. As a survivor, working with children from abusive households, Daniel was able to share my strength and experience without talking to them about it. In 2005, he observed that the work I do with children is the stuff that will last longer than the stuff you do for art. Nonetheless, by 2003, the Mountain Goats had gathered enough steam that their frontman was able to move to Durham and devote himself to making music full-time. Within a few years, he was enjoying what he told Rolling Stone was a dream life in a property that struck the interviewer as potentially a permanent home. 
The recording of All Hail West Texas occurred somewhere between these two states, between the predations of the colo mice and the possibility of a career in music. And 2001, though it wasn't the year of the album's release, must have been about the time when a future more secure than the past started to look at least somewhat possible. On the brink of this shift, it might have felt especially unusual to be sitting on a song like Riches and Wonders, whose ambiguous refrain, I want to go home, but I am home, seems perfectly crafted to decouple the concepts of home and security. A lot of people consider the tagline of the chorus very hopeful, Daniel comments in a podcast interview with Joseph Fink, but it's clear enough that he isn't one of them. Three years after the song's release, he told an audience at Carborough in his new home state that he rarely plays it, not because I can't remember the lyrics, but because I'm afraid of the guy that wrote them. The singer, in the lyricist's view, is expressing not only a cruel thing to his lover, but a paradox, an inescapable kind of sadness, one you would feel stuck and trapped in. While the couple in the song are in love and doing as well as they can be doing, at least one of them can't rid themselves of the need to be somewhere else, to return to some home that doesn't actually exist. This sad feeling is one Daniel links almost instinctively to Judy Garland. However nice it is in Oz, at times you want to go back to Kansas. A broader restlessness with regard to place, home and stability pervades Daniel's only true all-boombox album to date, as surely as the Panasonic hum. Previous Mountain Goats compositions had imagined houses leaning, tilting on their axis. None had, however, gotten quite as deep into the guts of domesticity and its discontents as this set of songs, in which characters are constantly either seeking new homes or worrying desperately at the seams of the ones they currently inhabit. We start with two guys who've been friends since grade school, playing music twice weekly together, only to see them suddenly forcibly separated in a panic over satanic symbols. This was how Cyrus got sent to the school where they told him he'd never be famous. In the next song, a star running back, a pillar of his school community, finds after a sports injury that he has nowhere to go but down, down, down. He starts selling drugs in Portland and winds up in prison with a mandatory minimum sentence, a far cry from the immigration success story that was presumably envisaged by his grandfather riding the boat over from Ireland. Colouring Your Cheeks is entirely about the exhausting human toll of forced migration, which brings dozens of people walking or crawling, some bright-eyed, some dead on their feet, to a halfway house which could really be anywhere. The southwestern ranch-style house in Jenny sounds pleasant enough, but the song derives its propulsive joy from getting far away from it. In Fault Lines, the central couple's house is one of a bevy of material things that don't make us feel better about who we are, and it might not matter how sturdy the construction is when there's termites in the framework of the people living there. By the mess inside, our house is simply a wreck, a fact that remains no matter what shenanigans, fluffy snow, bohemian dancing, a bench in New York City rich with new love memories, its tenants run headlong towards in order to leave its disappointments behind. Blues in Dallas is narrated by a figure already far from where he lives, who is fantasising about escaping still further to a heavenly realm where, as in Shadow Song, he may or may not be reunited with a lost loved one. It isn't clear if he's ever going back to where the other half implied by the pronoun in where we live resides. In Source Decay, the singer manages to arrive back in his own front yard, but this isn't a sign of groundedness or stability. It's a reminder of how far he's come from our old neighbourhood, two hours away, and that feeling is so strong that it makes the driver behind the wheel of his own vehicle feel like an abductee displaced by malevolent forces, a hostage falling from a plane. Caught between two homes and at home in neither, the narrator settles instead on perpetual motion as the closest thing to closure. I wish the West Texas Highway was on Mobius Strip. 
I could ride it out forever when I feel my heart break. In the closer, absolute life ops effect, meanwhile, the singer seems at least to believe in the possibility that I will bloom here in my room, but as soon as that's happened, you'd better believe he's going to find the exit. Somewhere in the middle of all this comes Riches and Wonders, a song about two people who are holding on as hard as they can to a rare thing, the love they've built together. They've been through some hard times, we assume together, and seem to understand this as part of their foundation. The great loyalty these experiences inspire is mentioned in the same verse as the couple being faithful to one another, as if there might be a kind of fidelity two people can vow together which goes even deeper than the romantic commitments to each other. Most of the song takes place in the plural voice, insisting that the details of its narrative are shared. We feed fresh fruit to one another, we stay up all night. And in the absence of we, the exchange is still reciprocal. You find shelter somewhere in me, I find great comfort in you. Although the alcohol we feed it conceivably isn't doing our love any favours, and is it a surplus of love that these people have if they need it, or only of the booze, the couple seem broadly to be doing everything right. They're keeping their terms of endearment fresh. They're incorporating their memories into their story together, love keeping the things it finds. And here I'd assume that the riches and wonders aren't merely material, like the frivolous spending on Italian race cars and English strawberries that is failing to hold the couple in fault lines together after about three years of fights and lies. They even have their health, or at least one of them does. But an impulse is building, apparently uncontrollably, for the narrator to be somewhere that isn't here with this person. A longing that, if I am home, cannot be cleanly satisfied. By the end of the song, of course, he hasn't gone anywhere, and so that uneasy stasis continues. The chorus ends on a B chord, the fifth in the key, and so a long way from its harmonic home, even as that plaintive voice informs us home is exactly where he is. Any resolution of the tension built here will therefore be taking place after this utterance, and outside the domain of language. As I've already told you, this August, my wife and I moved into our first home together. The first time either of us had lived as adults outside the private rental sector had been able to build a life in the ways that we and only we wanted to. I put a lot of weight on this, the establishment of a new household and with it a new family unit, one that needn't exactly replicate our own prior experiences of homes and families, to the extent of having perhaps too superstitious an attachment to the idea of everything going well, the delayed move-in date, the unexpectedly aggro neighbour, the key on completion getting stuck in the poorly oiled lock while we called the previous owner and implored her frantically to explain what she swore was a trick to the mechanism. Were any, all of these, indications of there being something wrong with our new house? As a question, of course, it spectacularly misses the point. Unlike in horror movies, where houses themselves might drip blood, might be haunted in more oblique ways by whatever it is that won't stay buried, the happiness that's possible in a house is largely determined by the people inside it and how they treat each other. This weekend, we decorated the place for Halloween. I bought a huge inflatable pumpkin, a bucket's worth of candy, and some ghost-themed hot chocolate toppers. We lit a log fire and watched the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Growing up in Fort Worth, Sydney commented that kids in her school were always claiming to know someone who knew someone who knew the house where it happened. They didn't, of course, but they were relying on the element of proximity to enhance the shock factor to imply that your own life, your own home even, is closer to this elemental, inexplicable violence than you think. It didn't seem that way in our house on Sunday night. We drank cocktails. We ate nachos. We tried our best to keep each other safe from harm. This episode was written and produced by me, Richard O'Brien. 
Most of the songs featured in this week's entry can be found on the Spotify playlist at the bottom of the newsletter. Thanks to John Daniel for letting me quote from his songs. The sources of all other quotes are given in the show notes and linked directly in the Substack newsletter. A quick update on the release schedule. After the next episode on the 2002 album Tallahassee, I'm going to be putting the show on hiatus until the first half of next year. There are a few reasons for this. Most pressingly, I'm waiting to hear back on an academic funding bid which would allow me to spend some time in Portland researching future episodes. I'd also like to set some time aside for a lot more background reading, getting familiar with key authors like Joan Didion and maybe even with Norman Sherry's biography of Graham Greene. But beyond this, the podcast is looking for a home. Many of you have very kindly said that you'd eventually like to read these essays in book form. It's important for me too, as an early career academic, to have this published in a less ephemeral format. The focus as the project is on an artist John himself calls a boutique concern, so far it hasn't been the easiest sell to editors in the UK. I'm already planning to work through a list of independent publishers in the US, which a reader was very gracious to provide. But if anyone listening has further thoughts on publishers and agents in the US who might be interested in this material, now would be a great time to let me know. You can email me by replying to the newsletter. You can also find me on Instagram at 30 underscore years underscore later, where you can get updates on new episodes, or on Twitter as at NotRockyHorror. If you like the show, you can always leave us a rating or review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts to help more people discover it. Or you can always just tell your few remaining friends. This week, Richard is getting into having a log fire. It rules.